my sincere hope is that in a little under an hour's time, when we are dismissed from our worship gathering, that you will go singing the words we just sang. Convinced in your bones that God loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine. That God loves you in a more passionate and present and wild way than your wildest imaginations could fathom. That's my hope. So would you join me in just taking a deep breath I'd invite you to close your eyes, and I want you to do a thought experiment with me. I want you to imagine God. I know that none of us has ever seen God. I know that God is a spirit, but what comes to your mind when you think about God? To whom are you praying? What comes to your mind when you seek Him in stillness and prayer? And know that this is not just a figment of your imagination, but this is the Holy Spirit deep within you cultivating and using the mind that God gave you to remind you that God is present to you right now. So imagine that He's looking at you. What expression is on His face? How does He feel toward you in this moment. And now remembering that God is with you and in you and is working out through you, I just want to take a step back and I want to ask you another question. Is what you're imagining right now what you've always imagined when you think about God? In this moment right now, Is this how you've always thought God feels towards you? Is this how you've always sensed God looks to you when He sees you? Now, it's not that God has changed. It's that your narratives, your imaginations, your stories have evolved and changed over the years. But I don't want you to lose sight of that image of God But if this God does not look like the Abba, the Daddy, the loving and good Father that Jesus knew, then I pray that by the end of this summer and even by the end of this night, you will be utterly and thoroughly convinced that if your God doesn't look like someone who is pleased and smiling and beaming over you, that you would begin to see Him for who He truly is, and that is a loving and gracious and good and strong Father. The Father that Jesus knew. You can open your eyes now. A.W. Tozer said, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you believe that? I believe it, and here's why I believe it. Your beliefs about God determine 
how you live your everyday life. Think about it. If you didn't believe in God, how would that affect your worldview? How would that affect the way you treat others? How would that affect the way you face death? If you do believe God, and you do believe He is who He says He is, well, doesn't that change everything in your life about your hopes and your fears and your goals, right? Doesn't that change everything about your hopes and your fears and your goals for your children? If you believe in God, the God who said, love me with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself, won't that belief work itself out into how you treat others? I hope so. If it's not, then you must not really believe that to be true of God. Our beliefs about God determine how we live our everyday life. And what we're looking at this summer is a series that explores these beliefs that we begin to cultivate about God. And we're going to be tackling some misconceptions about God. And the word that I'm going to use is a word, narrative. Our narratives are the stories and the scripts that are embedded deep inside of us that really work its way out from our inner life and our inner mind and the things that we imagine and think and feel. It works itself out from the inside to our outside. We all live with narratives and we all live out from narratives. We have family narratives, right? If I went to your Thanksgiving, you would tell me, oh, this is what we always do. You got to go sit over here and get ready because we're about to play this game or do that. Do you have family narratives? How about when I meet with a couple, especially in premarital counseling, and they say, yeah, my parents always said that, or oh man, my dad was always this way, and so I am this way. You with me? We are creatures of our cultures, and these are narratives that we have adopted. How about cultural narratives? What's some American narratives that drive us? What are the stories, the buzzwords, the mantras of America? How about, let me get you started. The land of the free and the what? The home of the brave. How about the American dream? Life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. These are our cultural narratives if you were born and raised in America. How about even religious narratives? Just a moment ago, that image of God that you had, that you were present to, do you think you were born with that? Could it be that even this church and the church of your youth and the parents that were believers or non-believers and the Christians you knew in high school and the Christians you knew in your family, didn't they help contribute to this idea and understanding of God before maybe you even picked up a Bible? We all live with narratives. We live from our narratives. And that's what I mean with this on the screen here. Our narratives not only shape our inner world, how we think, but they shape how we relate to the outer world. They work its way out into our lives. That's why I love what James Bryan Smith says. He says, we are shaped by our stories. In fact, our stories, once in place, determine much of our behavior without regard to their accuracy or helpfulness. I want to pause, step outside of the quote, and tell you, isn't that a scary and remarkable thing? 
Think about how someone might be racist. There's a new documentary that came out recently, and it was a man, a black man, who is a singer, and he went and sat down with militant white neo-Nazis. And he starts the conversation, and this is an awesome icebreaker. He says, do you hate me? Well, because you went and said this and did this and your whole worldview is this, but how do you know you hate me based on the color of my skin? But these are the narratives that can go and guide and live our lives and they can be incredibly inaccurate. The narrative that guides the racist neo-Nazi says that this person is this way and I must hate them because of their color of their skin. That is an inaccurate worldview. But it's a narrative that was shaped over some part in their history. So this is the scary part. Our stories, once in place, can determine much of our behavior without regard to their accuracy or helpfulness. James Bryan Smith continues, Once these stories are stored in our minds, they stay there largely unchallenged until we die. Unless you sit down with somebody who wants to challenge your worldview. He continues, Here's the main point. These narratives are running and often ruining our lives. That's why it's crucial to get the right narratives. That's from his book, The Good and Beautiful God. Pastor Kathy did an excellent class, and each week he would take a narrative about God that we can believe in our culture, and he puts it to the test and says, is this a narrative that's revealed in Jesus If our narratives shape our inner world and they shape how we relate to our outer world, we need to look, identify our false narratives about God and transform them into the true narratives revealed in the life and teaching of Jesus. This is what we're setting out to do in our summer sermon series, Is God. We're tackling the misconceptions. Tonight, we look at, is God an angry tyrant? More on that in a moment. Then we will look at, is God a spiritual vending machine? Does God exist to give us what we want? We'll look at, is God a Republican or a Democrat on July 4th weekend because I'm a toot? (laughs) We will look at, Pastor Kathy will say, is God an absent father? Is God a good luck charm? We're going to explore these identities, these narratives that are false, they're misconceptions, and we're going to put it through the filter of Jesus. And I hope you caught that last bit. We're going to transform them with regard to the life and teaching of Jesus. Here's why. If Jesus is the truest revelation of who God is, and if you've been around this church for any stretch of time, you're going to know what I'm about to say next. He is, because the New Testament in nearly every page assert the validity of this statement. You have John saying that the Word was with God. He was God. He, nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus, the Word, has made Him known. Paul says He's the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? It looks like Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says in the past we have a whole Old Testament of the prophets and the law but in these last days God spoke definitively finally in the Son who is the image the shininess of God's shininess the image of the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being in Hebrews 1 Jesus is the truest revelation of God if that is so then Jesus must be the litmus test for all of our narratives of God 
Jesus is the filter through which we will put all of these narratives. And I don't think that any one of them that we're going to be talking about this summer will survive the test of Jesus. Which is why we've got to get our narratives right. So each week we'll address three key questions. Tonight we will address three key questions. The first is this. What is a false narrative about God? What do you hear from the person on the street? What do you believe if you're tempted to stray from the narratives revealed in Jesus? What is a false narrative about God? The second question we'll look at tonight and each week is, then what's a true narrative about God? Then the third question, the the crucial question is, not just are we going to just think it because we like it and it's nicer, If Jesus is the truest revelation, then how does Jesus reveal by his teaching and example this narrative to be true? Because I want to say here at the outset, while I'm building this lengthy front porch, not just for tonight's talk, but for the rest of our talks in the summer, I want to get one thing straight. We don't dismantle the narratives just because we like our version better. We dismantle the the narratives because it affects our behaviors and because we see it most clearly revealed in Jesus. Because here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 34. And then I want you to put your finger there. And I I think we'll get to Ezekiel 18 later tonight. I'm going to continue to build a little bit of the front porch. And I'm going to answer these questions. But then we're going to look at our Bibles. And we're going to see where a true narrative about God exists. Right next to, watch, a seemingly false narrative about God. From verse this one and verse the next one, we have two verses, two narratives competing and contrasting seemingly. So that's why I want to tell you, it's not just that I want to tell you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. I do want to tell you that, but I believe it's fundamentally, factually true. Because even some surface level readings of these narratives in our scriptures need to be put through the filters and say, does it come out the other side and look like Jesus? And if not, then we've got to deal with it. How do we deal with it? That's what we're going to be looking at in just a moment in Exodus 34, but I've still got to build a a little bit more of our porch. As I said tonight, the first narrative we're going to be addressing is, is God an angry tyrant? So the first key question to look at is, what is this false narrative about God all about? When I think about an angry tyrant, I think about the people and places in history in which they kind of just make these ridiculous decrees and edicts, and they don't care who you are. If you don't live up to it, you're going to get your head chopped off. You're going to be crucified. You're going to be fill in the blank. Think of any angry dictator in the world. Right? The, probably the person that comes most readily to mind is Adolf Hitler. And his narrative was that the Aryan race was supreme and that the Jews were all this big pros- problem, so he killed millions of them. He was operating from a false and terrible narrative. And it led him to behave in this way. He was an angry tyrant. And if you cornered Adolf Hitler and did the thought experiment that we began, he would probably think that God agreed with his narrative even though God was the God of the Jewish people. But this is how backward and twisted we can get. Because a lot of times these false narratives, hear me, they come from our own projections, from our own brokenness, and we can project them onto God. Perhaps you don't have to think about history or Adolf Hitler. Perhaps you just have to think about a domineering parent or individual or family member or bully in your life. 
But the narrative that gets embedded is this. God is angry with you, and he must be appeased. If you do well, God's happy. If you sin, God will punish you. And I want to clarify one thing about this narrative. I'm treating this narrative as false from the position of one of his children, okay? Now, I can split hairs, and this is another message about how sin, the wages of sin is death, and how God is involved in the punishing or the judging. That's another message. We'll wade into a bit of those waters in a moment with, with uh, Exodus and Ezekiel. But I understand that, you know, God gives those who don't turn to him what they deserve because the wages of sin is choosing death. But I'm talking about from the position of God's child, the narrative is false because it's a narrative that looks more like karma and less like a God who's forgiven you in Jesus Christ. The false narrative is this. God, when you see him, when you imagine him like we just did a moment ago, he is frowning and with stern disapproval, he is angry with you because of what you did earlier. That's the false narrative. So what do you do? How do you respond? If our beliefs about God influence our everyday behavior, well, you do what the, pa- the child of an abusive parent would do, and you walk on eggshells, and you live in fear, and you live wondering what's going to happen based on the next choice you make. And so you live in such a way in which you try to avoid doing the wrong thing because you know his anger will spill over towards you. And then you try to do the right thing, and maybe he'll notice you, but maybe he won't. But it still cultivates this life of fear and distrust and depression. And too many of us live with this narrative. I think this is the primal default narrative that has gone on through millennia through humanity. You just imagine a cave woman, and I, Rob Bell years ago had a talk called The Gods Aren't Angry, and I have a whole section in my notes that I was going to talk about this cave woman, but let's just suffice it to say with this cave woman, she goes out, she sees a plant, she realizes she's dependent on the plant for food and for life, but then upon observation, she realizes that that plant is dependent on the sun and the rain, and so what happens is she eats of it, and things are good, and things are great until the rain stops coming and the sun burns it up. So now the cave woman who's dependent on the plant and the plant that's dependent on these other forces, perhaps she begins to evolve and cultivate in her thinking that maybe there are forces behind these other forces and they're angry with me because it's not giving me what I want. Because we want our system to look like karma. If you do this, then that. And she realizes at that point that she's lost her control. And so you have whole religions in our world today that evolved from this basic understanding of operating in fear and trying to game the system and say, God or gods, if I can sacrifice to you, will you be happy? And if it works, are you going to quit sacrificing? Shake your head, no way, dude. I got my crops. I need to give him more until what happens? It doesn't work again. So what do you do after that? You sacrifice more. And you can just see the history of religion steamrolling with this narrative that the gods are angry with us. And you can get whole temples and people making gods. And you can 
pull some other people that specialize in these God's capricious activities and you can say, look, you'll work out the systems, you'll work out the sacrifices, but the narrative has continued for millennia and I think it's our default narrative that works itself out in our life because way back in 2003, when I'm working with a youth group, a junior high schooler, and I think I've told this story before, still operates with this narrative when he comes to me and says, hey, when I go to heaven, is it true that God will whip me for every curse word I've said? I'm surprised not one of you are laughing about this. You're probably not laughing because you're imagining that this kid was stone cold serious when he asked me. So by the way, Jason, Becky, all of us in this community, would we try to cultivate a place in which these narratives get roundly rejected because he was convinced that even though God would welcome him into heaven, he had to get his licks in first. Well, I wouldn't believe something like that. Here's how I believe this, this narrative works itself out in my life after all of this time. Because when I was a teenager, I had this view that if I saw God's face, he was sternly disappointed. Why? Because I was mired in all the kinds of sins that teenage boys can get mired in. I was cursing like a sailor. sailor. I was lusting and maybe smoking a few cigarettes on the side. But then I had to spray my axe before I went and led the youth worship band. And I lived in this tension where I could do on one given day a good thing for God and he's okay. But when I went to bed that night, I was convinced that he was so disappointed because I was a hypocrite, I was a sinner, and I was not a child with whom he was pleased. When are we tempted to think this way? When are we tempted? Ask yourself, where have I heard this narrative? Where have I believed this? When am I tempted to believe this again? These are on the slides too. You can ask yourself. I might be tempted to believe that God is angry with me because of my performance. I'm sorry, God, I didn't read my Bible today. I'm sorry, God, I haven't been praying with you much. I'm not even sure I know how to pray that much. When am I tempted to believe this, that God is angry? Many of our false narratives come because we're listening to the wrong voices. But sometimes, and this is the real tough part and where we're going to get into Exodus 34, sometimes our false narratives come because we're not really reading the Bible in the way that I believe we ought to. Some of these false narratives come from the Bible just take a quick tour of Christianity from the Crusades to the American slavery and you can find these people pointing back to the Bible and say, I can do this because of this. And they can point to this verse or that verse and some misreading or some misinterpretation. This is the sad fact of our faith and we need to repent and make sure we don't make the same mistakes again in this generation. So just before we get into Exodus 34, and I told you I was building a big front porch because I want you to understand how important and how, how, how vital our narratives are in getting them right. And so every week, we're not just going to answer these three questions. What's the false narrative? What's the true narrative? How does Jesus reveal the true narrative? We're going to look where these narratives come from in the Bible. We're going to try to deal with it. We're going to try to wrestle with it. And I hope we can do justice to it tonight in the few moments we have left. But here are some tips when you read the Bible. From a person who's a pastor that tries to read the Bible the best I can, there are three things to help. 
always ask when and why this was written. What's the genre? Who are the people? When is this happening in history? Is this for me? And in what way is it for me? Secondly, always put the passages alongside the broader narrative, the Genesis to Revelation narrative of Scripture. What is God doing throughout the generations of the centuries? What is true in Genesis and is also true in Ephesians? And what's true in the Gospel of Mark that's also true in Micah, the prophet? Where does this square in the broader narrative, or is this for a particular people for a particular time? Third thing, always put these passages through the filter of Jesus. This is what Jesus did when he came. He said, you've heard it said in Leviticus, but I say to you, you've obeyed the Sabbath, you've gone to the temple. Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Always put it through the filter of Jesus. It's why I have tattoos and you eat pork. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. But now, look with me at Exodus 34. I want to take you through a formative and normative and climactic passage in the book of Exodus, and I want to answer those final two questions. If God is not an angry tyrant ready to jump all over and kill his children, and it's not a karmic type of God, then what is a true narrative? And I want to begin by jumping in the middle of the Exodus story and get you up to speed before we read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 34. You with me? God has graciously, you know the first part of Exodus, God has graciously rescued a people from slavery. He's liberated them, let my people go. You with me? But then what he does is he blesses them and says, because you're going to be a blessing to all the nations that I told your father Abraham you would be. But listen here. These people are subhuman slaves for generations. They're not quite sure how to live. How do we be a holy people for a holy God when we've been making bricks and enslaved and enchained for generations? God says in Exodus 19 and 20, I'll show you. I'll show you by giving you commandments, and I'll show you by creating a covenant, an agreement rooted in relationship that says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Choose life and follow me. Don't choose sin because the wages, the consequences of sin is death. So they lived still under the narrative of the cave woman we talked about earlier in which all the other nations believed that you could see gods because you made them out of stone and precious metals and they believed that gods must be appeased. So when Moses is on the mountain the first time in Exodus 19 and 20 and following, they get impatient. Raise your hand if you get impatient with God sometimes. Please, it's safe. You can. I get impatient. I'm an impatient person. Try to color with me and my three-year-old and I'll show you how impatient I am. They get impatient and you know the rest of the story, the famous story in Exodus. Moses comes down and he sees his brother Aaron and a bunch of people acting a dang fool around a golden calf. And Moses is so frustrated, he breaks the story stone tablets that God had given him for the covenant. Before God's people even got out of the gate, they ruined it. So Moses mediates and he says, God, help us. And then in Exodus 33, right before we're getting to our part of the story, 
God says, you know what, Moses? I am going to show myself to you. I'm going to present myself to you. I'm going to say my name, and you can meet with me. And Moses is saying, God, just please hang with us, man. And he says, you guys can go and do you. I'll give you what I said, but I'm not so sure I can go with you if you don't figure it out. And then we get to Exodus 34. The Lord says to Moses, okay, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were there the first time. Already we're introduced to a new kind of God, a God of second chances. Every other God that was an angry tyrant that needed appeasement would say, go do this, go do that, go do this, go do that, but actually, never mind, I'm going to wipe you out. Already he's a God of second chances, especially because God says, uh, which you broke. Be ready in the morning. Come to Mount Sinai, and he's going to say, you're the party, the mediator for the Israelites. Come and present yourself. So verse 4, he does what the Lord God said. And then verse 5, if Moses is the first party, you need a second party. Verse 5, the Lord came down and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Every other God was made with the human hands. Moses is up on a mountain and God still had to come down. That should alert you already that centuries ago we're dealing with a new kind of God. A God that's not made. A God that can't be seen like a golden calf. And a God who doesn't get pleasure from you dancing around him like a maniac and doing all sorts of buck wild stuff like spring break. All of a sudden God is pleased to meet with a human who's blown it. Get yourself into the story. Understand when and why this is written. This is revolutionary. And then God presents himself. Why did God have to show up? None of the other gods ever showed up. God shows up and it says he stood before Moses. He presents himself. God humbles himself to come down to the mountain to meet with Moses. And then he actually humbles himself to show up and actually talk to him. Every other god would have just wiped him off the face of the earth. Their minds are already being blown because he's so much bigger than the other gods. And then he proclaims his name, which is the salvation, covenantal, relationship name that God says. Every time you see Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, it's this special and holy name in your Hebrew Bible, Yahweh. Rabbis and Jewish people today, we could learn something from them because they are so not frivolous with this word, they even write it with a different pen. They are so not frivolous with this word, they don't even have vowels they attach to it because to say it or to speak it or to write it out would be too holy and too profound. I think about how we could learn something from that. But also don't lose sight that the holy God is also wholly available to you. So verse 6, and this is where we're really landing in verses 6 and 7. He passed in front of Moses and he proclaims, this is what he said he would do. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the narrative that will become normative down through the generations, if you asked an Israelite, what is God like? They will tell you. He is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Y'all can barely maintain 900 Facebook friends. He maintains love to thousands. What is God like, Israelite, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin? Kara, I'm jumping around, but I want you to go to how this phrase, this narrative becomes the normative. This is what it looks like. Exodus 34-6 in the broader narrative. If you follow our Bible guideline and you go and trace this through the Old Testament, you will find dozens of times in which these words are used. And it's not just Moses, it's David. And it's not just David, it's Micah. It's not just Micah, it's Nehemiah. It's not just Nehemiah, it's Jeremiah. It's not just Jeremiah, it's Joel. It's not just Joel, it's Jonah. Here's a list. I have them printed out. I wanted to read all of them for you because what you find when you read this is not verse 7 of Exodus 34. Keep this on the screen and let me just read to you God's proclamation to Moses in a particular time to a particular people and where we might and Israel might get a narrative based on this superficial reading of verse 7. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Up on the screen you have a smattering of places through generations in which what God says to Moses in verse 6 gets repeated down through the ages. It becomes the creed of the Old Testament people. What doesn't get repeated is verse 7. So if you're a good Bible reader, you're already paying attention because we sang verse 6 earlier. We prayed and read verse 6 earlier in Psalm 103. So if you're a good Bible reader, you're saying, okay, well, how does verse 7 fit then in the broader narrative? If it gets left off in the creed, then what are we to do with this? Well, first of all, you need to see it's an issue of contrast and emphasis. Look back at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, he says he maintains love to thousands. And what does he do? He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the second time God said it. Remember, Moses broke the tablets. He's going to write it again. Make note or flip back to Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. The first stone tablets get this same formula. He just flips the order. The first time he says, if you make an idol, I'm going to punish the generations. I'm a jealous God. I'm going to punish the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, of those who reject me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. I said it's an issue of contrast and emphasis. Here's what I mean. He, it's a contrast because he puts these two right here. Know that he maintains love to how many? Thousands. How many does he punish? Two, the third and fourth. Maybe you can count the first and second. Two to four generations. It's a matter of emphasis. Number one, this is how compassionate God is. Well then, Adam, what do we still do with this narrative that looks like an angry tyrant who punishes innocent children? What's the true narrative? The true narrative is that sin has consequence and God is a loving judge. 
And when it says those who hate me are the kinds of people who reject me. And we can see this played out anecdotally when we have a father who's angry and alcoholic and abusive. And we see the shockwaves of his sin and the shockwaves of that consequence filling the family unit to the third and fourth generation. A person close to me is dealing with the generational sin today of something his late grandfather did and they just discovered after one family psychic break that there was a great grandfather and a father before that and on and on it goes because the enemy loves to get these things worked out into generational structures and they love for it to shape us and help us hate and reject God what's going on is the consequence in this time and in this place is to be my holy people you have to understand it ain't just about you it's about the shock waves that sends it down and the sins will go on and on and on and on but the question number two that we've got to answer is this how do we reveal this tension well if verse 34 6 gets repeated all throughout the scriptures and seven doesn't then we're closer to the true narrative about God that sounds something like this because it's a matter of contrast and emphasis and that is that God's steadfast love outlasts the consequences of persistent sin. Just in case you're not convinced, look at Ezekiel 18 and I want you to write this down and it'll be in the, uh, the, the resources when it's posted online. Look at Ezekiel 18, verses 1 to 4. I don't have time to read it. I want you to read it. And then I want you to read verses 17 to 20. Because Ezekiel and elsewhere in Jeremiah are going to listen. They are going to directly contradict Exodus 34, 7. Can I say again? Ezekiel and Jeremiah are going to directly contradict Exodus 34, 7. Because we have to put this narrative up against the broader narrative and look at Ezekiel 18. He's building a case, this whole thing. He says, the one who sins is the one who'll die, 18.4. Then, in biblical theology, the wages of sin is death. Now look down with me at Ezekiel 18.19. He says, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? This is a great question, Ezekiel, because this is the narrative that's lingered since the Exodus. But he says, since the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. Because God's steadfast love outruns the sins of his Father. You don't have to be stuck in the generational sin. You don't have to be stuck in the family narrative. You don't have to be stuck in the cultural narrative. God is inviting you out of it if you would turn to him and find life. This is elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 31, Jeremiah 31. You have choose life, choose life. If you would turn to me, the righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them. And the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. The child won't share this. God doesn't delight in punishing. If you look at Ezekiel 33, you see he doesn't delight in punishing the wicked. Let me say that again. He doesn't delight in punishing the wicked. So God is not an angry tyrant that will punish the innocent people and children for the sins of others. God is not interested in being appeased. He's interested in your love shown through repentance. 
What is a true narrative about God? God's steadfast love outlasts the consequences of persistent sin. That's what we see throughout the Old Testament. But now let's put it to our final question. How does Jesus reveal this narrative to be true? On the next slide, Jesus exposes the narrative of that karma. If you do this, then this will happen. I want you to write down, and even right now as you're listening to me, look at Luke 13, 1-5. His disciples who were Jews had this embedded primal narrative that says, God going to get you. God going to get you. And so what happens is they say, hey, remember when this grain silo failed and killed a bunch of people? He said, did they sin bad or what? Remember when they brought the blind man to him and said, okay, God, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he ain't blind for nothing. Both times Jesus says, no, no, no. He says, but unless you repent, you'll all wind up dead. So repent and find life. You still have Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that contrast there. God still is going to deal with sin. He wants you to repent, though, because his mercy always triumphs over judgment. Do you hear me? Jesus, secondly, makes the cycle of sacrifice obsolete by his sacrifice once and for all. Colossians 2.13 says he nailed every sin to the cross. The sin of the teenager who cussed. The sin of the person who is mired in lust. The sin of the person who's angry. The sin of the person who hurts other people. The sin of the person sitting in jail for child pornography. The sin of the person who did a hit and run and murdered a family of four. The sin of every single person, Adolf Hitler included, was nailed to the cross. If you would come to Jesus, you can find it. That God doesn't have to be appeased. Christ appeased him. God will be pleased if you turn to him. This is the true narrative. This is the good news of Jesus. He did what we couldn't do. And thirdly, that's Jesus frees us from the power and penalty of sin. So we are welcomed into God's arms. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He has removed every barrier from you. Run full tilt to the Abba who will embrace you like the prodigal son. He will embrace you and love you even like the religious elder brother. He looks like a God who's waiting and looking to the horizon. He's not ashamed of you. He wants you. And I know you've heard me say this a million times, but I talked to you on Monday and you've forgotten it. And you talked to me on Tuesday and I've forgotten it. Oh, that you would know Abba's arms are open wide because Jesus is cheering you on and says it's because of me. And by the way, even before me, Abba loved you and made you and formed you and breaks for you and wants you. And if his grace is an ocean, you ain't just sinking, dude, you drowning. This is who God was, is, and always will be. The Old Testament bears witness to it, which is why we have that big fat part in our Bibles too. But it's why we push it through this filter because we see finally John saying in chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's Exodus language. Moses and those people knew in part when God tabernacled with them. But Jesus the word came and tabernacled with us. We have seen his glory. Moses saw his glory in the cleft of the mountain, but we've seen it full throttle. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And the Father 
full of grace and truth, abounding and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and remaining and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness and rebellion and sin, made good when he sent Jesus. And John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You thought Moses saw God, verse 18, no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. Jesus comes and puts flesh and blood in a face to the God who is slow to anger, loving, and gracious. Back to our thought experiment as we close. What's the expression on God's face? Maybe your image was like mine for a long time, that he was the angry and disapproving father out to get me, but the truth is God's face toward me, then and now, is smiling and beaming with love and pleasure. The truth is, is that Jesus revealed God's face to the world, and it's one that asks you, to come and find forgiveness. It's one that takes sin seriously, so seriously that Jesus would give his life to deal with it. So that the generations would be broken and dismantled from this punishment of sin and death. If you asked our brother Ramon in Russia, Ramon, do a thought experiment with us. What comes to your mind when you think about God? I guarantee you he'll say this image here. It's a pen and ink drawing that's about yay big and it sits in his office and it's sat with him since he was a child. And he's had issues with family members and he's had issues with people in churches that want to wreck that image, but he releases those narratives in light of the smiling and laughing Jesus. And he wonders if Jesus is looking up to the Father <clears throat> And like some mirror reflecting the gaze of love and delight and joy down onto you. He wonders if, I wonder if, when I see this, if Jesus is not looking up to the Father, what if he's looking up at his disciples when he washed their feet? And what if, may you, what if you would release all the fear of God out to get you in lieu of the loving Abba that Jesus knew, would you let go of that and find the Father full of love and forgiveness? And would you not see God as the angriest individual in the world, but would you see Him as the most joyful being in the universe who delights in meeting with you where you are and to give shape and witness to what His character really is like? not of an angry tyrant out to get you, but of a loving Abba ready to forgive you. Let's pray. Lord, I mean it when I say I would rather people just have the mantra on repeat. He loves us, He loves us, He loves us, He loves us. Lord, I just surrender everything I said to you that what is good will last and what is not good or misleading would be cast away. So Lord, we just ask that you would meet with each person, present to each person, and you would begin to...
like a tender surgeon just revealing and removing and reshaping the narrative of the beloved Abba. Because Lord, if we get that image of the good, good Father in our bones, I believe we would be the kinds of good and loving and joyful people you made us to be. So may it be in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. May you establish outposts of the kingdom wherever you go. As foreigners who long for the heavenly country promised as your inheritance, may you cultivate the tiny mustard seeds, entrusting the work of your hands and faith to the Creator, whose gospel is growing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. May you regard disgrace in the name of Christ the highest honor, suffering in the way of Christ the greatest joy, loss for the sake of Christ the dearest gain. May you follow the leading of the Spirit into holy discomfort wherever he is calling you, as ministers of reconciliation, as bearers of peace, and as citizens of the unshakable kingdom. Go in peace.